0: But now it's time for Bible study. We're in Romans. I don't know if you, if you knew this, but we're, uh, we're still in Romans. I was telling some folks, uh, I just received a very uh, sad message. I was told by Brother Chuck that I'm going to be fired when I finish Romans. And so we're slowing down in Romans. <laughs> Take a peek, folks. We're in Romans chapter 8 tonight, and we're going to look at... Uh, just a couple verses, beginning in verse 17. So Romans 8, uh, verse 17. If you have your Bibles and are turning there, that would be great. If not, you could just listen along. Here's what it says. Romans chapter 8, verse 17. And if children... You see, Paul has been speaking in prior verses about the joy of being adopted sons and daughters of God... That's exactly what happens when someone accepts Christ. We become adopted into the very family of God. And so we have an entirely new status. We become part of the forever family. We used to be at odds with God, and now we're joined with him just as family members are. And Paul took some time to explain to us the blessings of adoption. And so in keeping with that, piggybacking on it, he says what he says here. And if children, but you see where it says if, The sense of the word if in this context is really since. So we could render this, and since we are children, since we are children, he's speaking to Christians only, uh, heirs also, he's saying one of the... uh, privileges of being an adopted child of God is to be one of his heirs. We inherit what he has to give. We're familiar with this procedure and vocabulary. Uh, Every child who has a dad, who has things to give, has those things bequeathed to that child by the father. This is sort of typical. Sometimes it's done formally in a will, sometimes informally. What the father of the child has to leave behind, what he possesses. If he loves the child, if the father is loving, he bequeaths it, he leaves it to the so the child, and Paul is saying here, if we are children of God, we are in the same sense heirs of our father, and he has plenty to give, and we inherit it. And among other things, one of the things God has to give those who are his, and I hope we don't underestimate this, is his, himself. Think about it. At one time, we were apart from him. There was no connect, no relationship, surely no conversation of a meaningful kind, no safety, no intimacy, no peace between us and him. Now, everyone has him as creator. I know that, but not everyone has him as Abba Father. And upon accepting Christ as Savior, he's the mediator between us and his father so that his father becomes ours. And so one of the greatest things that God bequeaths to us is himself. In in a sense, we as Christians inherit God. We inherit access to him. We inherit relationship with him. We are safe with him. We are consoled and comforted by him. We have him as our guide and director in life. He provides for us and directs our paths. We can pour out our heart for him in a way we never did before. We couldn't approach the king of kings. Are you kidding? All of a sudden we can, just as if he's daddy, just as if he's papa. No longer do we have to choose our words carefully. We can express our hearts hearts, filled with emotion. Sometimes hurt feelings could be expressed to God. He delights in us, pouring out our heart to him. He never says, go from me. I'm busy. I have no time for you. He has eyes set upon us. We are valued by him. He numbers the hair on our head. He's charted our course from before time, and we've caught up with him. Our lives now are mixed. They crisscross through Christ Jesus, the mediator, and we have an entirely different relationship. And so the personal relationship with Almighty God is the most precious thing that he, our Father, has bequeathed to us. But sometimes it's a little hard to get that and to place value on it. This happened with someone called David. Remember David, King David? He wrote many Psalms. There was a time when David looked around and he determined that wicked and ungodly people seemed to be doing pretty well. They have much of what the world has to offer, concluded David. They have all kinds of material things. And he began to be a little jealous of it. And then he came to the conclusion that all that they had will eventually come to an end. And not only that, they will meet with an end that's not very pleasant. They will have to stand before Almighty God as judge. And David realized not all that the world has to offer can come close to comparing with what it is to have a personal relationship with otherwise distant and transcendent deity, to know him personally. And in that uh, context, David said what he did in Psalm 73, verses uh, 25 and 26. He said, whom, it's not a what, it's a whom, whom have I in heaven but you? And then he said, and besides you, I desire nothing on earth, Wherever I happen to be, said David, whether one day in heaven or at present here on earth, the essence of my life, my most valuable possession, if you will, is that I have a connection with almighty God. He said my flesh, his physical body, and my heart, his emotions, all the rest may fail. And those things befall us as well. We suffer from physical maladies. We suffer from emotional maladies. David was aware of these things. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion, my inheritance, forever. David realized the most precious thing his father bequeathed to him was himself. Do you realize that? Do I? Folks, we have to really, really focus on that. In spite of all else that we may be lacking, to have a personal relationship with the giver of life, the king of kings, the God who always was and will be, the one who will meet and be with forever, to have a relationship with him is worth more than all the silver and gold the world has to offer. So Paul is talking about this. And his readers, as you can imagine, are getting uh, excited, delighted, juiced, happy. They're seeing all the riches they have in Christ Jesus. And then it gets better. He continues in the verse. He said, you see, if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and get this, fellow heirs, or maybe your Bible says joint heirs with Christ. Now, you know and I know that the Lord Jesus is different than us. He's the only begotten Son of God. The rest of us are adopted, by faith, adopted sons and daughters of God. But, though we are adopted, we still are full-fledged children of God sharing in all that Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, has. That's what's indicated here. We are fellow heirs with Christ Jesus. What the Father has bequeathed to us, we share in. Jesus will inherit absolutely everything that the Father in advance promised he would. And since we are fellow heirs with Christ, our inheritance is just as secure as his This is one of the reasons why I have something called assurance of salvation. I hope you do as well. My salvation is not guaranteed on the basis of my behavior. That fluctuates. I have ups and downs in my performance. My salvation is contingent on the fact that I'm a joint heir with Jesus Christ. And he will never forfeit what the Father promised him. And neither will I, not on my merits, but because I'm connected to the Lord Jesus Christ as a joint heir going to air. This is good stuff, is it not? Yes, so then why does Paul ruin it with the next phrase? I think he's on a roll. Everything is cool. This is really good. I love his sermon. This is great. I'm coming back next week. And then he says, if indeed we suffer with him. What in the world? You talk about a downer. That is just, you're talking about sonship and Uh, inheriting what God has to offer and being a joint here with Christ. And I'm just wondering why Paul has to insert this into the mix. For crying out loud, he was on a roll. People are going to come next Sunday. He's going to have like a big church. This is really good stuff. And now he ruined it. If indeed we suffer with him. Does it say that in your Bible? Okay, good, because I was thinking, I'm, I'm not, I was going to get another Bible. I was gonna, but if yours says the same thing, we have to rest. Why in the world did Paul insert this here? I'll tell you why. He was concerned about the people he was writing to. And if you're really concerned about the people around them, you have to tell them the truth. That's why. You can't tell them what they want to hear, you have to tell them what they need to hear. And Paul was really a good guy. So he said, i got to tell you the whole story here. You have lots of wonderful privileges and blessings in Christ Jesus, but there's a reality of a, a kind of a hard and harsh kind, but it's part of the, the, the reality that I have to tell you. If I want to tell you the truth, I want to speak the truth in love to the people I love, I gotta tell you, that here where it says if, that word is, is best rendered since again, since indeed. We, who are children of God, since indeed, we will suffer with him. So. So here's the truth, though we are children of God, and though God is uh, our inheritance forever, though we are joint heirs with Christ, still we face the reality of suffering while we live here in a fallen world. That's the normal Christian life. If you're in pain, even as we sit here, many are, and I know many are in such pain that they cannot be with us here tonight. Charlie Morris passed away just this morning, so his now widowed wife, Martha, is in pain. George Boring passed away, oh, just about a week ago, and his new widow, Ludmila Boring, is now in pain. And there are many, many others, are there not? And so Paul wants to be truthful, and he doesn't want to sugarcoat things, lest we think when we run into something like that it's abnormal, unusual, or there's something wrong with us. It appears that that kind of experience, the experience of uh, some degree of pain and hardship and suffering this side of heaven, it seems to be normative for all Christians. You see, here's good news. Since we're joint heirs with Christ, we share in his glory. But here's maybe not such good news. Since we're joint heirs with Christ, we also share. In his sufferings and though a son he suffered greatly now the notion of being a son and suffering does not sit well with us we think sonship and suffering don't go together so if we're a son or daughter of god and our suffering loss of various kinds we we can't make those jive we think they're inconsistent we've I think we bought the false bill of goods that somehow being a child of God uh, brings us immunity from pain and loss and uh, physical maladies and and all the rest. So so when we experience those things, we're really, really troubled about it. We think it's inconsistent, the two concepts of sonship and suffering, but um, this seems not to be the case with the only begotten Son of God, who, though he be a son, suffered very, very greatly. So when we consider, consider our Savior, there doesn't seem, by his example, to be any inconsistency with sonship and suffering at all. And, and it appears that suffering, it does not automatically mean that we are receiving God's displeasure and disfavor. It doesn't mean that at all. But we're troubled by this, you know. We think ungodly people for sure, should be experiencing in life a degree of misery. We think, by definition, if they're apart from the giver of life, then they've inherited misery. We accept that. But when it comes to godly people, God's people, we cannot understand why even God's people experience a measure of misery in life. This just does not sit right with us. And so many have made attempts to explain why bad things happen to God's people. And uh, you realize this is only a problem if you believe in one God. So I just want to offer you an option. uh, If you choose to give uh, uh, away that belief you can embrace the belief in many gods, as do you know many people in the world hold to the existence of many gods. And then you could explain easily the problem of suffering and evil in the world this way. You can say there are good gods and there are bad gods. And on certain days, the good gods are winning, so good things come your way. On other day, the bad gods are calling the shots. And that's why bad things happen to you. So that's an easy explanation. Do you like that one? Okay, good. No is the right answer. So then people say, no, you don't have to give up your belief in one God. You can hold to one God, but there are different options with regard to him so as to help us understand the problem of evil in the world. And here's one option. The God you believe in, the one God you believe in, is strong for sure, but he doesn't care. He's mighty, he's sovereign, but he doesn't care. He's distant from your plight, and that's why you go through difficulties. Do you like that one? Okay, so far you're doing good, two for two. But how about this option? The God you believe in cares for sure, but he's not strong. (laughs) He has a soft heart. He hurts when you hurt. He weeps when you weep. He wished he could keep you from all that befalls you. He cares to do that, but his arm is too short. He dwells in heaven. You're here on earth. He cannot extend his goodnesses to you as much as he wants to. He can't keep harm from coming your way. His arm is too short. So you see he is strong, but not caring. Do you buy that one? So there's a man named Rabbi Harold Kushner who years ago wrote a book called What Happens When Bad Things Happen to Good People. The man, the rabbi wrote it uh, with response To the terrible plight of his son, his son had a disease called progeria, which is premature aging. I think he was eight years old, but the systems, his physiology, age prematurely so that it's like uh, an 80-year-old person. Bones become brittle and organs begin to fail, sight becomes impaired, all the rest. I don't want to know what it's like to be in the presence of a child and see this happening. So I don't want to be too hard on the rabbi. I don't want to be insensitive. But here's what the rabbi went through. He knew that God was sovereign and strong. And therefore, if he also knew that that God was caring, I mean to say, he knew that God was caring and compassionate. But if he also knew that this caring and compassionate God was strong and able to keep this from happening, but did not, the rabbi said, I could no longer follow him, worship him, and be his servant. So the rabbi concluded, you see, this is the theory he embraced, that though God is caring and compassionate, he's not able to do the things he would like to keep harmful things from coming our way. Isn't that a sad and terrible theology to embrace. But that's what the rabbi, in his, uh, in his pain, that's the theory he embraced. I want to tell you, you don't have to embrace any of those. Here's the one, it seems to me, that is most biblically accurate. There is one God. And the one God who is there is strong. He's omnipotent. And at the same time, the omnipotent, infinitely Strong God does care. He is filled with compassion and kindness. But the ways of that one God are hard to comprehend. I think that's the most biblical point of view, hard to comprehend. Let me illustrate with an illustration offered by a lady named Monica Dickens. She tells the story of a two-year-old boy named David. Um... Much to her dismay, David's mother was told her son had, her two-year-old son had leukemia. She took the boy, after doing some research, to a hospital in which uh, was a doctor who specialized in this particular uh, brand of cancer which had befallen her two-year-old son. Uh, the doctor examined little David and said sadly to his mother, he. He only has, at best, a 50-50 chance of surviving. And what followed were countless visits to the clinics and the hospitals and then blood tests and intravenous drugs and lots of fear and pain for both mother and and child. When he was three years old, um, the doctor told David's mother that he required a spinal tap And if you're familiar with the spinal tap, it's a very painful procedure at any age, let alone at the age of three. The doctor stooped to David's level, doing the best he could to explain to him that he had to hurt him, but that he was doing it because he cared for him, he loved him, and in the end, he was doing this to help him. And David's mother chimed in, saying to him, David, it's going to hurt, but if it hurts, remember, the doctor loves you. Well, the procedure was in fact quite painful, and it in fact took three nurses to hold David still while he yelled and, and he cried and he, and he struggled. And when it was over, uh, David looked up at the doctor and said to him, thank you for my hurting. Thank you, doctor, for my hurting. Folks, there is only one God. He is very strong. He's very caring. He's very able to do what's best by us. But we cannot possibly fully understand and comprehend what he is up to. But there will be a day, one day, this is for sure, when we will stand before him and we will look up to him and we will say to him, Dr. Jesus, thank you for my hurting. Now I know. We just have to wait and we just have to trust him until the time when like little David, we can say thank you. I see now why, though you could have kept this from happening, you chose not to. I see now why you let this trial, this pain, this loss, this period of suffering run its course. I see how it ultimately, in terms of eternity, I couldn't see it then, I see it now, I see how it was in my best interest. Thank you for my hurting. What you say, especially if you're here and in pain, you say, how in the world could loss, grievous loss, pain, medical struggle, financial travail, how could these kinds of things, persecution, which Christians around the world are experiencing in increasing measure, how could these things possibly be of help to us? Could I offer uh, two answers? Here is one. Those kinds of things drive us away from the world, don't they? You get to the point when you're experiencing those things when you say, this world is not my home. Now, could I tell you something? We don't have a right to hasten the process. I think it's permissible before God to say, oh God, take me home. Oh God, I yearn to be from here and with you. This is legitimate, but to act on those inclinations is unacceptable. By the way, if you're a Christian, there is no such thing called suicide. Did you know that? It's homicide. Why do I say that? Because once Jesus bought you, you no longer are your own. He ransomed you with a price. You're not your own person. You're his. Therefore, if you take your life, you're actually taking the life of one who bought belongs to another. So suicide for a Christian is actually 180 degree homicide. You're turning it on yourself, but you don't belong to yourself. You belong to the one who ransomed you with a prize. So one of the things all of these afflictions do is cause our hold on this life to be loosed. And we finally believe what it says in the scriptures that we are aliens and strangers. This is not our home. One of our big problems as Christians is getting too comfortable with this life as if we're going to be in this life forever. No, no, no. We're a vapor passing through. It doesn't last that long and it it has a lure and attractiveness and we find ourselves wanting more and bigger and better and these things which we possess end up possessing us and they become the focus of our attention and they're good things and we delight in them they give us pleasure but we think we have them but they have us and God allows difficulties to come our way and then we cease to prioritize those things they're not important anymore you know what's important finding a reason to live of finding a reason to breathe and get out of bed in the morning finding a help beyond ourselves and we find Jesus in a more intimate way than ever before you see so one of the reasons God allows those things is to drive us away from this world and the second reason is to drive us closer to God that's what he does trials drive us to sheer and utter dependence on God who else are you going to run to when there are no answers and there is no relief nobody even caring people could relieve your pain and agony you may be in the best situation i don't mean to i don't mean to be a, a frivolous about your pain or take it lightly but you may be in the best situation of your life, to hang on to Jesus. Do you remember in Genesis when Jacob said to, was wrestling with an angel of God that's actually God, and he said, I will not let you go until you bless me? Are you kidding me? God could have loosed his hold in a second. But that's exactly the position God wanted to be put in. Jacob was now emptied of all things. He was filled with fear and all the rest. He had no one, nothing else to cling to except Almighty God. He said, I will not let you go. He, 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 he gripped God tenaciously. He, he loosed his hold on all other things. He latched onto Almighty God. He said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And God blessed him there and he was a changed person, don't you see? So that's another reason why God allows difficulties to come in our life. Our hold on distracting words. things is sometimes loosed and our hold on Almighty God is strengthened we run to him because we're hurting now read with me again the verse we're looking at if children heirs also heirs of God fellow heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with him and now this new part so that we may also be glorified with him as children we're heirs in fact, fellow heirs with Christ. We share things with him. We share in his sufferings. Now, this is good news. And we also share, as it says here, in his glory. We share in the sufferings of Christ here. And we will share in the glory of Christ there. The believer must expect, not be surprised by. The believer must expect. So the Bible says, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal which comes upon you. The believer must expect present suffering. And the believer must expect just as much future glory. When the Lord Jesus was in the world, he was treated in a certain way. And every believer shares in this. And when the Lord Jesus returned to his father, he was treated in a certain way, and every believer shares in this. The world mistreated our Lord, we will be mistreated. Don't be so surprised when it happens. The father welcomed the son, and we will too. Don't be so surprised, for it too shall happen. For Christ, it was the suffering first and the glory later, and so shall it be for all of us who are his but is it wrong to be so future oriented i don't think so paul didn't think it was and found he in fact he found much consolation in thinking about future realities as you can see in verse 18 take a look at that look at this two whole verses in one night verse 18 for i consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy To be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. See the first phrase, for I consider, or your Bible might say, for I reckon. It comes from a Greek word. Listen to this word, logizomai. Logizomai. Does it sound like anything? Logic. You know what Paul is saying? I'm a reasonable guy. I'm a logical guy. I've done a reasonable, logical analysis of life. (laughs) That's what he said. I've thought it over carefully, and I have arrived after an evaluation of life. I've arrived at a conclusion, and this is the conclusion. Present sufferings are nothing compared with future glory. Paul is not here saying, stop grieving, stop crying, stop being in pain. No, 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 that's not what he's saying. He's saying as intensely as we may hurt even the intensity of those present hurts and pains are nothing in comparison to the overwhelming weightiness of the glory which will be ours in days to come. That's what he's saying. Can you see the words here? The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared. See that word worthy, not worthy? What a cool word, but I think we miss it a little bit here in English. It has to do with weighing things in, in scales, you know, a scale, two sides, and, uh, and you're trying to balance it out. If you put something on one side of the scale, and something on the other weighs the same amount, they're in balance, so you could say, this thing is worthy of this thing. This thing weighs as much. This thing is equal to this thing. That's what he's saying. You know what he's saying? If you have scales and you put on one side the feather of our present sufferings and weigh it out as over against the unlimited, infinite weightiness of the glory which will be ours, the two are not worthy of comparison. There is an imbalance. As great is the travail we now go through, as great as it is, can you imagine? No, you can't. <laughs> It's tough to, but try. Imagine, it's not worthy in terms of its weightiness and impact on our lives. Present suffering is not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be rev- The future glory, Paul is saying, so far outweighs present sufferings. There is no comparison. In other words, whatever it is we have gone through, whatever it is we are now going through whatever it is we may go through the sum total of it all is not worth comparing to the glory that yet awaits us but wait who does paul think he is is he some seminary guy studied to be a preacher he's just preaching Is he just a guy who stands up there, but he's distant from the crowd? He can't relate to the human experience. It's been smooth sailing for him. Are you just philosophizing about suffering? Is that your perspective? You're a philosopher? Is that what you... No. Paul is speaking about the issue of suffering uh, by virtue of his personal experience with it. Let me give you a sampling. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Are they servants of Christ? Paul is speaking. I speak as if insane. I more so in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers amongst false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and it goes on and on. No, no, no. This is no ivory tower academic philosophizing about the deeply human experience of suffering. This is someone well acquainted with it. And he says, I've come to this conclusion. I know of what it's like to suffer here, but I also know of what it's going to be like to enter into the glory of Almighty God there. And that glory He's not even worthy to be compared with whatever it is we go through now. And so he suffers, as do we. Yet he was consoled, as I hope we are, with thoughts of glory to come. But what does that mean, glory to come? We don't know. That's why it says this. It is the glory that is to be revealed to us. Look at it. It's not the glory we could understand arrive at, discern, research. (laughs) It's something that can only be revealed to us one day. In other words, there's nothing here we've ever seen imagined, enjoyed, delighted in that can even come close to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Think about the best time of your life. Think about the place you most enjoyed being. Think about the most beautiful scene you have ever experienced. Think about it. Think about it. Think about the time when you had the highest emotional. Think about it. And Paul says, it's nothing in comparison to the glory that is beyond our present human experience to such extent it cannot be apprehended in the confines of our finite mind. You can only get to it by getting to the God behind it, and this you will if you're a Christian. And when you get there, it'll be glory finally revealed. A woman named... uh, beth landers tells the interesting story of a man who found a uh, a cocoon in which was a certain kind of a moth they call them emperor moths i don't know what that is but that's what the story says it's a moth in a cocoon the man thought it was interesting he took the little cocoon home thinking soon in a few hours the moth will find its way out and he could see it take flight this would be interesting to see So he took it home. I guess the guy had a lot of time on his hand, and he was just looking at this cocoon, you know, what? he's moving inside, and then all of a sudden, there's a little opening in the top of the cocoon, and he could see the moth moving and trying to make its way out through the opening, but hours went by, and, and the the moth apparently was struggling desperately, the man thought, to get out. He thought he would help the moth along the way. So he took a pair of scissors and clipped the cocoon a little bit so as to free the moth and out popped the moth with a disproportionately enlarged uh, swollen body and little weak shriveled up wings. Well, the man thought, let's just give it some time. You know, those wings will pop out and he'll fly away, have a good life flying moth. Well, that never happened. Just a big old body to carry around and shriveled up little wings. You see, he didn't understand. Neither do we. God's design. God made it this way. You see, it turns out that in the process of struggling, the moth's struggles to free itself from the cocoon, uh, fluids are forced from its body to its extremities, to its wings. So in the course of struggling by the time it frees itself. It doesn't have an engorged, unduly enlarged body. It has strengthened wings, fit to allow him a flight to freedom. Folks, the struggle is painful, excruciating, hard to watch, and hard to endure. But don't you agree with me? Sometimes the struggle is exactly what we need. And a good and gracious Father is willing to allow us to have it so that one day we take our flight to freedom. And if you're in the midst of the struggle now, could you please take consolation? Try it. In the words of Paul that we just reviewed, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us. Lord Jesus. I think one day when we stand before you, we'll say, oh, I should have trusted you more. Oh, God, would you so work in our lives now that maybe few of us would say something like that? Would you so engender trust and our confidence in you now that in spite of circumstances, in spite of the struggle, we know that you behind it, have our best interest at heart. There's only you. We pray to you, the one true God. You are all powerful and you have a heart that will not let us go. Oh God, though we don't understand your ways and we hurt and are filled with fears. Oh God, would you help us to trust you more? And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.